If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On this episode, we speak with the journalist and author Hadley Freeman. Her new book, House of Glass, tells the story of the Glass siblings, Freeman's paternal grandmother Sala and her great-uncles, through the 20th century. Moving from terrifying pogroms in pre-war Poland to the brutality of wartime prison camps and emigration to America, she explores her family's history. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met up with Hadley in London to find out more. So we're talking today about your book, House of Glass, mm. which is an account of your family uh, through the 20th century, some members of your mm. family through the 20th century. I wondered if we could start just by talking about how you came to their stories. So I grew up always hearing vague stories, for example, about my great uncle Alex. I would hear this story about how he escaped from the train to the camp and that my grandmother had come from America, had come from France to America to escape the war. And so I always had this idea of there being a story in the background. And they all died by the end of the 90s, which was just when I graduated from university. And I sort of had this idea of just writing about my grandmother because she had always been this very melancholic, a very elegant figure. And I, I knew there was something. I didn't know whether I was going to fictionalize her story or even if there was a story. And I spent about sort of five years 
uh, to use the technical term, dicking around, um, trying to make some inquiries into what her life had been like. And then I went to her old apartment, which um, my father's younger brother lives in, and he hadn't thrown anything away of hers, which was very lucky for me. Um, and I was just sort of going through her closet because I had this vague idea of writing about her relationship with clothing. Um, and I found this shoebox at the back of her closet that was filled with letters and photos and photo albums and other keepsakes that didn't make any sense. And then at the bottom, this drawing by Picasso. And that was kind of it. Um, and so I, I sort of spent the, that was in, I think, 2006. And so I had these dots that I was trying to join and I couldn't quite figure out how to join them. Um, and then eight years later, eight years after me traveling all around the world for spending so much money, God knows, you know, going through archives in Poland and Nice and Paris and the Auvergne, everywhere, um, my uncle found among my grandmother's belongings this unpublished memoir by um, my great uncle Alex. And that was like the line connecting the dots. I could now make the story and I was able to fact check everything. And, and that's that's how it came about, really. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to start talking about those sources mm. in a little while because how you came um, to find out so much about your family mm. really is a fascinating portion of your book. But could you just maybe introduce your grandmother and her siblings to us first? Sure. So um, my grandmother was one of four. The oldest was called Henri. Um, and they were, I should say, first of all, they were all born in Poland. So the Polish names, were Yehuda, Jacob, Sender, and Sala. And then in the 1920s, they all moved to Paris to escape the Polish pogroms, and they became Henri, Jacques, Alex, and Sara. Um, Henri was very tall, very handsome, very stylish, and very, very brilliant. He was a brilliant engineer. Jacques was very passive, very quiet. He looked a lot like his father. Um, in photos, he sort of looks like a young Adrian Brody. Um, and uh, he was a poor tailor in the Marais, like a lot of Jewish immigrants. Uh, Alex was this incredibly um, bombastic, uh, very uh, charismatic, five foot two uh, couturier and a very successful couturier. And then the youngest was Sarah, which who was my grandmother, who was this very beautiful, delicate young woman who loved art and loved painting. So you just mentioned they all grew up in Poland um, until a certain mm-hmm. point. Um, can we talk a little bit about their upbringing in Poland and, and the violence that seemed to inform the rest of their lives, really? Right. So they were all born in Czarnow, which is 18 kilometers from Auschwitz and is actually the, the sister town of what's known as Auschwitzum. Um, and they it was a very typical Jewish shtetl. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it, uh, people who lived there at the time compared it later to paintings by Chagall, stories by Isaac Bashevis Singer. My grandmother would always compare it to the film Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, it was 56% Jewish at the time, and it had a big Jewish marketplace. It manufactured Judaica. They were very, very poor. Their father was incapable of earning any money. Um, and so the children grew up very poor, very hungry, but had a lovely, happy childhood. Um, they had a whole bunch of cousins, the Ornstein cousins, who lived around the corner. There were at least seven of them. Um, and then World War One started, and everything became very bad. And their neighbors, the Catholic Poles, suddenly turned against them. The country became very nationalistic as the poverty rose. And then once Poland was liberated, the country kind of turned on the Jews and blamed them for Poland's troubles. Um, and then Czarnow was the first town in Poland to suffer a pogrom, uh, which is when Catholics and townspeople would tear through the town and kill Jews, attack Jews, ransack their houses, ransack their shops. And one of my grandmother's memories from childhood 
is this pogrom when she would hide under, she hid under the bed uh, with her mother and her brothers and Alex, her her closest brother, ran out when he was 12 years old to try to fight against the pogrom. And he saw when he ran out people he knew, including his brother's teacher, who was a close friend of the family, and people who shopped uh, from his father, people who bought sewing machines from his father, um, and their neighbors. And this completely changed him forever. This made him trust nobody ever again. Um, and it also made him a real fighter. Uh, and this pogrom, eventually, these pogroms, which kept happening, eventually drove them all to Paris, uh, which was actually an incredibly good thing. These pogroms were incredibly fortuitous because if they'd stayed in Charnoff, they would all have been sent to Auschwitz. Um, in Charnoff now, there are no Jews at all, um, which is kind of amazing because, first of all, the place, the idea that there's no Jews anywhere. But Charnoff was such a Jewish town and there's still no Jews there. Um, so it, actually, the pogroms saved their lives. Hmm. So before we go any further ahead with, with your family story, um, you visited Poland as part mm. of the research for this book. What was your experience like and what was it like digging into this history? So Poland was actually the last research trip I did. I went to Czarnoff and to Auschwitz uh, in March 2018. The first trip I did was in March 2001. The last one was in March 2018. And I had really put it off because partly because I didn't want Auschwitz to overshadow the whole book and also because I was just really dreading going. I knew this was going to be a really depressing trip. Um, and it was, but in ways that I hadn't really expected. Um, first of all, Charnoff itself is a very pretty town. And we had these lovely guides there who were helping us. And we found the street where my grandmother and her siblings used to live. And we found, and right around the corner was all this anti-Semitic um, uh, graffiti, which was kind of incredible to see. And amazing uh, kind of validation of my grandmother and her brother's decision to leave. Uh, and then we went to Auschwitz, which was really eye-opening. Um, you know, I had expected it, obviously, to be sad, but it was sad in ways that I hadn't expected. Uh, the Law and Order Party, um, who are who were in charge of Poland when we were there and still are, they've been really focused on um, changing the narratives around World War II um, and insisting that Poland was purely a victim in World War II and had no culpability. And various members of the government have said things like that, that Auschwitz-Birkenau needs to stop focusing on foreign narratives, by which they mean Jewish narratives, and that the camp should really focus on the Polish suffering there. And it's true that 75,000 Poles were killed in Auschwitz, which is terrible, but more than a million Jews were. And if you go to Auschwitz now, if you take the official tour, you really just see where the Poles were killed. You don't get a sense of the Jews. Uh, this was really made to murder Jews. And obviously the Poles did suffer terribly from the Germans. The Germans considered the Poles untermension. But the the fact is Poland was an incredibly anti-Semitic country. It's why my my grandmother and her brothers left. And a lot of Poles helped the Germans kill the Jews. And it's actually a crime now to sort of say this in Poland, to say that Poland has any culpability. Um, and if you say this, the various Polish government ministers have said things like, oh, this is just the Jews being embarrassed at how the, um, that their ancestors went so meekly to the camps, when in fact the Poles were pointing out the Jews to the Germans and killing them uh, and killing Jewish children. Uh, so I was, I was really surprised at the camp by that. And um, I spoke to people from the Holocaust Educational Trust afterwards, and they said how much it's changed in Poland just in the past five years. If you went five years ago, you would get a fairly straightforward narrative 
narrative of what happened. You go now and the focus is really on Polish suffering. And probably the most amazing bit is when you leave Auschwitz, there's a gift shop in the car park um, with all this I Heart Poland stuff. And I wrote about it in the newspaper after I went in you know 2018 or whenever it was. And I got these angry tweets from Auschwitz on Twitter about it saying, it's not our gift shop, it's, it's the local municipality. And I thought, oh my God, there's something quite funny about being told off by Auschwitz on Twitter. <laughs> it's like, it's this it's in itself is a Jewish joke, as though the gift shop wasn't a Jewish joke, the idea of being shouted at by Auschwitz on Twitter. But the fact that it's the local municipality's gift shop just makes it even worse. I mean, this is the local government saying, you know what makes you want to buy an I Heart Poland mug? going to Auschwitz. Um, so it's it's very strange how that narrative works. And there's a really interesting contrast with, with France. You know, France is really coming to terms with its culpability after having denied it for so long. But then under President Chirac in the 90s, it started to admit how bad it was, basically, and how much it collaborated. Um, and now there are sort of monuments around at the various concentration camps that were in France, whereas in Poland, there's a real aversion to admitting its culpability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that, sent that idea of culpability, and, and in France, the idea of collaboration obviously mm. plays such a, an important part in your family story. But if I can pick up on what you said about narrative, mm. um, uh, you already mentioned a really um, key source for your book was Alex's oh, memoir. Yeah. And there, there's obviously a challenge there with that oh, narrative, yeah. the way that was created. What can you say about Alex's story? So um, when my uncle found Alex's memoir and he sent it to me, um, my dad did say, you know, don't really take this too seriously. Alex was always a big braggart and, you know, no one ever could really trust anything he said. Um, so I went to it sort of just thinking, well, this will give me an outline, but I don't really know if I can trust it. And I am, I hate to tell this to listeners, I am not a historian. I didn't even do history A-level. I did history of art. I'm so sorry. So I knew I'd have to triple check everything because I felt very insecure about my historical knowledge. And also I wanted to make sure everything was accurate. I didn't just want to write a book of family anecdotes. That seems silly. Um, and the amazing thing was that everything I, I, that Alex wrote I fact-checked and it turned out to be true. So Alex's story really is incredible. So he was this poor Polish immigrant um, who arrives in Paris when he was 14 and works his way through the couturiers and he opens his own couture salon at 20, which is insane. And he did this all independently with no backers and he succeeded. And by the time the war started, he was in his late 20s um, and he joined the Foreign Legion uh, because he was still a Pole, he couldn't join the French army. And in the Foreign Legion, he um, was part of the Narvik campaign before France fell to the Germans, and he won a Bronze Star for his bravery. Then France fell. He then went to Britain to join up with Charles de Gaulle and the Free French, but then he wanted to get back to Paris to rescue his mother and his brothers. He went back to France, um, but he could only get into uh, the south of France. And he then opened up a salon down the south of France and was living there with this man called Jean Setour, who was a friend, maybe a lover, we really don't know, um, and was living this very glamorous life. Um, I should also have mentioned that when he was working in Paris as a couturier, his draftsman um, at his salon was Christian Dior. Um, and another draftsman was René Gruot, who became one of the most famous fashion illustrators of the 20th century. And they were down in the south of France with him. So he was living this kind of high life down in the south of France. Um, but then the south of France fell and the Germans invaded Nice. And um, he was arrested uh, one night at a nightclub after he made a bit of a scene. Uh, the orchestra in the nightclub started playing German music 
And in the scene straight out of Casablanca, um, Alex stood up and said, you should play the Marseillaise. Um, and the Germans came and arrested him, put him on the train to Drancy, which was a concentration camp in France, um, from where prisoners were then sent to Auschwitz. While he was on the train, he saw a hole in the roof. Um, and he got his friend, uh, this guy called Jacques, Herb, uh, Jacques Schwab Ericor, to pick him up. And he punched through this hole and jumped out of the train. Um, he was then rescued by railway workers who were communists who hid him in a pile of manure when the Nazis came looking for him because they knew the Nazis were too vain about their uniforms to go to manure. From there, he made contact with someone, I later found out who, who then got him hidden in a place in the Auvergne. And he hid in this house in the Auvergne for a year um, with his friend Imre Partos, who was another fashion designer, who again may have been a lover, but was certainly a friend. Um, so Alex had told me always that he'd escaped from the train. And I thought, I really, I mean, how on earth does one prove this? And it turns out you can prove it pretty easily. You just compare the records of who got on the train and who got off. And he definitely got on the train. I went to, uh, you could see the records. Um, he definitely didn't get off the train, I'd say. The records were in Paris about who got off the train in at Drancy. So he didn't get off the train. But then I went down to Nice and went through the records, and he definitely got on. Um, and Clar um, Sarge Klarsfeld, who is, you know, one of the great French um, Holocaust historians, has written a lot about Nice in particular because he was a child in Nice when all this was happening. And he said there were, I think it was 93 people escaped from the train and Alex was one of them. So he definitely did escape from the train. And um, when I figured out he did definitely escape from the train, um, I and this wonderful historian um, who helped me through the book called Daniel Lee, Dr. Daniel Lee, made contact with various um, resistance experts in central France, because we knew the train had to go through central France, so it was going from Nice to Drancy. If they'd ever heard stories about some Jewish fashion designer who escaped from the train, this was like real shots in the dark. And incredibly, someone got back to us, this man called Robert Picanday, who runs this resistance museum in the Auvergne, saying, oh, yes, there's this woman here who remembers this Israelite who came and stayed at her parents' house. I think it's your uncle. Uh, so Dr. Lee and I went off to the Auvergne and we went to this little old lady's house in the middle of the woods. And I just thought, I mean, this is like this ridiculous. I can't believe I've been working on this book for 20 years at this point. And here I am in this weird little house in the middle of, literally in the middle of the woods. I thought, this is crazy. And, I sit, and we're sitting there and she's very sweet, Madame Amer. And she comes out and she has all these photos and they are photos of Alex at the house. So this was the house. She was still living in her parents' house. And she showed me the attic where they were hidden and the hidden staircases. And I said to Mr. Picanday, I, 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 you know, I was trying to figure, I, I said, I wonder, was it the resistance that brought him here? And he said, oh no, it was people, this officer in Vichy. And it was this officer in, in the Vichy government called General Perret, whose daughter had been a client of Alex's when Alex was a couturier in Paris. Um, and he helped Alex. Um, and that whole story I found really fascinating because we think of Vichy as just basically analogous to the Nazis. And some of them were, definitely. But actually, there were a lot of people in Vichy who were just real old school French Catholics. And 
yes, they didn't like the Jews, but it's because they wanted to protect the sanctity of French culture. So it wasn't that they wanted France to be German, like on no level. So if there were Jews around who had fought for France, as Alex had done, they were happy to protect them. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic in the Vichy Nazi alliance. And it worked against a lot of these um, old Vichy people in the end. There was another one called Xavier Vallat, who was in charge of the Aryanization of businesses in France, which basically means taking the taking you know businesses away from Jews. And he helped Alex open a salon in Cannes. He gave personal permission for Alex to open his salon in Cannes, which is bonkers. It's like the home secretary saying that some local business can open a you know newspaper shop. But because Alex had won a bronze star at Narvik, he stepped in and, and said yes. And three months after that, he was kicked out by the Nazis. And they installed this guy called Louis Darquet de Pellepois who then got his own infamy later. This is perhaps going off on a tangent, but because his daughter became a psychotherapist in Britain. I didn't want to get into this in the book, but she then caused other damage. And Melvin Bragg has written about his familial connection because his late wife was a patient of, of Darkie de Pelopo's daughter and the damage that this woman caused in Britain is really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you can go down so many different paths and I really try, had to keep narrow focus when I was writing the book. And also I didn't obviously want to intrude on uh, Melvin Bragg's family story, but he has talked about it and his daughter has talked about it again recently. Um, so all those kind of shifting alliances within the government and how they affected the people. So, I mean, Alex was protected essentially by two people in Vichy um, who suffered for it later. Um, anyway, so he survived the war um, and he was doing resistance activity while he was in the Auvergne. And after the war, he went back to being a couturier and then stopped in the mid 50s and became a art collector and gallerist and became this great friend of Picasso in particular. And that is how the Picasso drawing was in my grandmother's shoebox. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Her story is one of emotion, whereas the men's stories are ones of action. And I think that's true for women up to relatively recently in terms of historical tales, because women weren't allowed to do things. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, if we could go back to France a mm. bit, because you mentioned it in, in your answer about Poland with the collaboration, but I wonder if we could um, go back to their initial settling in Paris mm. um, as um, after they'd emigrated. Um, what did their experiences tell us about the lives of Jewish people in, in France at that time? So... You know, when I went into this, I really didn't know anything about what Jewish life was like in between the wars. And I worried a little bit that this was just my historical ignorance. But it turns out this is kind of something that's only covered in sort of specialist books. And 
you know, it's incredibly sad. You know, it was so many Jews from Eastern Europe were coming to Paris. Paris, Warsaw, and New York were the centers where Jews were running to um, to get away from the pogroms. And Warsaw was, in some cases, too close to where the pogroms were happening. New York was too far away. Paris was the third logical choice. So Paris and France suddenly getting these huge influx of Jewish immigrants. Um, and the reaction of France and other Jews to this was really interesting. At first, France was delighted because they needed a workforce because so they'd lost so many men during World War One, And then the Great Depression happened. It bit into France. As happens when there's economic trouble, immigrants are blamed. Suddenly, Jews are being blamed for taking jobs. Jews were suddenly being restricted in certain professions. Immigrants were being looked at with suspicion. Oh, are they these, these suspicious Bolsheviks? You know, the anti-Semitism that France had had in the 19th century and around the whole Dreyfus scandal, that abated after Dreyfus because France was so ashamed. Well, that started to flare up again. Um, and it's, you know, it's really hard not to think of parallels with how uh, certain right-wing factions, or maybe some left-wing factions, talk about Muslim immigrants when you read about how the Jewish immigrants were talked about 100 years ago. Um, and also just how the assimilated Jews in Paris were looking at these immigrant Jews. It's just, you're going to drag us down. We're showing that we can be bourgeoisie here, and you here, you're here with your dark clothes and your curls and your stupid customs. This is dragging us backwards. Um, so that's always very interesting to look at that. And what's also interesting is that the same thing was happening in New York. So the Jews who did make, the Eastern European Jews who did make it to New York, there was a similar sort of antagonism with assimilated Jews there, and also with the American governments there, who were just like, we don't want all these dirty Jews everywhere. Come on, we need to really put quota restrictions on our universities and on jobs. Um, so the, what was happening in Paris was also happening in New York. Mm-hmm. So Alex's story is one that's, uh, you know, really central to your narrative. It, it, as you say, it, it's quite a rip-roaring tale. I mean, <laughs> someone whose story perhaps wasn't as accessible as, as Alex's, um, given his memoir, was your grandmother's. Mm. Um, and I found this a really moving part of your of your book. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your grandmother's story? Sure. I suddenly realised I gave away all of Alex's stories there, didn't I? There's plenty more. <laughs> there is plenty more, I promise. Um, so the thing with my grandmother was that she was always this very melancholy, distant figure to me, but also someone who wanted something from me. It felt like as a child, and I just didn't know what it was, or it scared me, or I don't know. It, you know, it, I felt overwhelmed by the idea of an adult needing something from me. And actually the story of my grandmother is, you know, I was writing the story and I thought, gosh, is anyone going to be interested in this? And I've been really touched that so many people are. Because the truth is, her story is very common one for women and it's not one that's told a lot. I was really thinking a lot of um, Dorothea in Middlemarch when I was writing this book because, as George Eliot says in Middlemarch, the story of hidden lives and domestic, the private, the feminine, these are stories that, you know, are not written about really. Um, So Alex's story for obvious reasons, I was able to track down in archives because he was constantly being spied on by Vichy. Um, Whereas my grandmother, she was the youngest child. She was often sick. She was in sanatoriums for pleurisy for a long time. She then got out in her late 20s and her life was just about to begin in Paris and she was probably about to get married. And um, Alex knew that the Nazis were coming because he was involved with people in the art world and he saw how the French art establishment was turning against Jewish artists like Chagall and Moisha Kisling. He realized that France was not going to protect the Jews. So he tricked my grandmother essentially into marrying this American guy 
who is my grandfather. And so my grandmother went off to America and spent her life as this quite unhappy housewife, really. I mean, you know, I don't I don't want to like over egg this. And my father is always saying, you know, she's I don't want to don't want to make it sound like she was crying all the time. Like she made a life for herself in America and she made friends and she had two sons and she it wasn't like my grandfather was a terrible person, but it wasn't the life that she wanted to have. And she was always waiting for her life to begin and go back to Paris. Um, and she didn't get that opportunity for multiple reasons, which I'll leave for the reader to, to, to discover for themselves. But, um, and that it's a, it's a, her story is one of emotion, whereas the men's stories are ones of action. And I think that's true for women up to relatively recently in terms of historical tales because women weren't allowed to do things and women weren't going to war. Women a lot of times weren't working. And so this is why women's stories don't get told because it's very hard to research emotions. I was able to research emotions because A, I knew her and B, I know her friends and her children and people who she talked to. So I was able to describe those emotions but it's hard and this is this is why women's stories don't get told and I think it's something that people have maybe latched onto in the book that this is the kind of story that doesn't get told yeah I, I mean I definitely felt that when reading it and um I'm really really interested in your experience at, at writing that story though um looking at the sources that the phrase you used was rummaging around in closets that have long been closed there mm. was um a peculiarity there for you um what what can you say about that well, it's I, even now I sort of thank God, <laughs> what have I done? I've like unleashed all these photos on the world. And especially so like the oldest brother, Henri, was a big photographer. And um, I didn't know what I was going to find out about him. I had no idea what he was doing during the war. I really didn't know anything about his story, his wife, Sonia's story. And so I went to go talk to his daughter, Danielle, quite early on. And just like, you know, did, did your dad leave anything? Really not expecting very much. And she said, oh, yes. And she took me down to the basement. And there were like four suitcases full of everything um, with receipts and, you know, um, memoranda and just everything. And he kept he wrote records of exactly what he was doing during the war, which was really helpful um, and was a sign of how uh, unstable he felt his life was. He felt he had to account for everything because you never knew when the Nazis were going to come back or when France was going to turn on him again. So he kept records of everything so he could prove everything was in order. Um, but among that, he also took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos. He was a great photographer. And he really fell very deeply in love with his wife, Sonia, when they met in 1931, I think. Um, and he took so many photos of her and he was very attracted to her. And there are these series of photos that I still kind of think, oh my God, well, I can't believe I put this in the book. But when I found them, where she's kind of doing a little strip for him, basically. I mean, don't worry, there aren't naked photos of my great aunt in the book. <laughs> He's a dad. But it's just like she's wearing a jacket in one. And then the next one, she's taken off the jacket and she's just wearing a little vest top. And then in the third photo, she's sort of lying on the bed with her legs slightly akimbo. And it's very sexy. Um, and, you know, I don't think they meant for these photos to be published necessarily. It's not like there's nothing shameful, but you do think, oh, what have I done? Um, so there is a bit of that. And, you know, I don't know what they all would have wanted to be known. Um, I know Alex would have wanted his achievements to be known. I don't think he necessarily would have loved his ex-employees speculating about his sexuality. Um but this is a full story and is trying to get the full human range of experience. I, I, you know, I really hope I didn't publish any, I didn't write anything disrespectful. I, I knew almost all of them and loved them. Um, but of course, I mean, they've all been dead for almost 30 years in some cases. 
uh, you think they would not believe that people are interested in their lives. This would be a huge shock to them. <laughs> well, well, you just mentioned there, even with, with four siblings, you know, all from the same family, born in the same place, there is a huge range of experience, even mm. just their four lives. Mm. So what did you learn or, or take from um looking more broadly at these these periods these history and this, these atrocities through individual lives well one thing that was really helpful i spoke to um another historian called dr john o cummings who lives in israel before i started and i was sort of telling him the story and i was like i just can't figure out how to you know how to like basically structure it because there's there's just so much and he said it's interesting because these four stories seem to reflect the Jewish experience in the 20th century. And that was just like the final light bulb moment. I was like, okay, I've got it. Which I hadn't really thought of before because you have Henry of Henry who hid during the war, um, Jacques who was captured, Alex who escaped, and my grandmother who went to America. And then their siblings who are either killed or went to Israel. And I was like, okay, this gives me the structure. And it also means the book isn't totally rooted around World War II, uh, which I didn't want it to be. Although obviously there's a lot about that, but I wanted it to go from 1901 to 1999. And just knowing that range of experience, I found fascinating. And also, like you said earlier, how much their temperaments affected their outcome is really fascinating to me. So Jacques was very meek, passive, always following the rules. And that did not work so well for him. Um, Alex was very a defiant individualist and he fought his way to life, really. Um, and it's sort of ama- it's amazing how much their temperaments determined their their outcomes. I really wanted to ask about garments in mm-hmm. your book because you already mentioned you came to the story initially hoping the angle was fashion. Mm. Then you've got Alex as a couturier, your, your grandmother's mm. uh, French sense of style. What what role do, do garments play in this history for you? Well, probably quite a lot. I mean, I didn't really even think about it that much as I was writing it, but definitely. For the Glass siblings, they were always very aware of fashion. Their father had been very stylish, even though he was this poor um, uh, sewing machine salesman in Poland. And when I was looking through a book in um, the Shoah Memorial in Paris, I was able to recognize Jacques getting on the train to the concentration camp because he was dressed so stylishly, whereas everyone else around him was dressed like a worker. Um, So for them, the clothes are part of their identity. Um, and certainly when they moved to Paris, they wanted to emphasize their French identity by dressing in this very French way. So Henri would wear these three-piece suits. My grandmother would wear these very kind of Chanel, Yves Saint Laurent sort of, well, I mean, Yves Saint Laurent wasn't designing them, but very kind of Chanel-esque outfits. And Alex obviously was making these clothes and was making French clothes and making very French exaggerated styles. So for them, it was part of identity. It was part of fitting in. It was part of a assimilating it was part of leaving behind the polish ghetto um so i just saw it in terms of identity i didn't even really think of it about fashion even though you know i as you know some guardian readers will know i worked on the fashion desk for a long time but i never really thought of it as a fashion thing i saw it as more of an outward expression thing mm-hmm. and and how is that kind of sense of expression you you touch on it in, at the end of your book the kind of the legacy that endured mm. your family what can you say about so um without wanting to give away anything um so after the glass siblings died my family kind of all we just sort of drifted apart um we didn't stay in touch and then some of my cousins and I found each other because we all happened to be working in the fashion industry and we hadn't really known each other before we might have heard about each other um 
But it's funny that we all went into it. You know, our grandparents all worked in what was known as the shmata trade, which is Yiddish for clothing, really. And then we all did too, without ever consciously thinking about it. But obviously we were influenced by our grandparents at some level. That was Hadley Freeman. Her book, House of Glass, The Stories and Secrets of a 20th Century Jewish Family, is out now, published by Fourth Estate. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when Priyam Varda Gopal will be speaking about rebellion in the British Empire. Hey.